Rocky Sandcraft. If you own 10% of a business and it made $1 million of profits this year, how much do you have to pay in taxes on that income? In the U.S., there are two common answers to this question. One is that your income includes 10% of the business's income, so you have $100,000 of income and pay, say, $37,000 of taxes on it at the top federal income tax rate of 37%. This is the normal way that, for instance, law firms are taxed. A partner who owns a one-tenth share of the law firm counts 10% of the firm's income in her income and pays taxes on it. It's the normal way that most hedge fund managers are taxed. More generally, it's the normal way that partnerships, limited partnerships, many limited liability companies, and a lot of corporations are treated. Their income is treated as taxable income of their owners, who report their share of the income on their individual tax returns. They are called pass-through entities because their income is passed through to their owners. The other common answer is that your income doesn't include any of the business's income. This is the normal way that large corporations are treated. If you own 10% of Meta Platforms, Inc., you don't pay taxes on 10% of Meta's income. You don't pay any taxes on Meta's income, even if you are Mark Zuckerberg. Instead, the corporation itself generally pays taxes on its income. It is treated as its own separate tax entity, not a pass-through, and has its own taxable income and pays its own taxes. These are corporate taxes, which are generally at a lower rate than individual taxes. The current federal corporate tax rate is 21%. If the corporation pays any cash dividends, you pay taxes on the dividends you get at a capital gains tax rate of up to 20%. When you eventually sell your stock, you pay taxes on your gains, i.e. the difference between the price you sell for and the price you bought at, also at the capital gains rate of up to 20%. Schematically, if you buy 10% of a corporation for $500,000, i.e. the corporation is worth $5 million and it makes $1 million of income this year, then it pays $210,000 of income taxes, leaving $790,000 of income. If it puts that income in the bank, then your stock is now worth $579,000, i.e. the value of the corporation is now 5.79 millioners because of the cash. And if you sell it next year, then you will have a $79,000 capital gain and pay $15,800 of taxes. But if you don't sell it, you won't. There are advantages and disadvantages to this for you. The disadvantage is that the income is taxed twice, once at 21%, when the corporation earns it, and once at up to 20% when you sell the stock or get a dividend. If the income was passed through, you just pay your own tax rate, up to 37% on it. The main advantage is that you don't have to pay your share of the taxes, the capital gains tax, until you want to. As long as you don't sell the stock and it doesn't pay dividends, you don't have to write any checks to the Internal Revenue Service. You can let the money compound in the corporation without paying taxes. The real advantage is when you can do this forever. For instance, you buy a stock, its value keeps going up, you don't sell it and you don't pay taxes. If you need cash, you go to your broker and take out a loan secured by the value of the stock. If the stock keeps going up, you never pay back the loan and you can borrow more money if you want. Eventually you die, your heirs get the stock and they don't pay taxes on your gains. This is called the basis step up. When you inherit stock, the IRS pretends that you paid market value for it, 
so you don't have to pay taxes on the previous gains. This is sometimes called the buy, borrow, die tax strategy. You get to benefit from the income of the business without ever paying taxes on it. I mean, not entirely. The corporation itself does generally pay corporate income taxes, but partially. And if the business does not pay U.S. corporate income taxes, for instance, because it is a foreign corporation with a different tax regime, then things could be even better for you as a tax matter. That is a rough overview of how U.S. business income taxation works, though, oh boy, is it not legal advice. These are, roughly speaking, the rules. The U.S. tax code treats some sorts of business income the first way, pass-through taxation, and it treats some sorts of business income the second way, two-layer corporate taxation, but for a whole lot of businesses, it lets them choose which way they would like to be taxed. If you start a limited liability company, you can tell the IRS whether you'd like to pay pass-through taxes or corporate taxes, and the IRS will let you do whichever you want. The most important exception is that widely held corporations normally have to pay corporate taxes and can't choose to be pass-throughs. People sometimes complain about this. Sometimes they complain about corporate taxation, saying that it is double taxation of the same income and thus unfair. So they argue that corporate tax rates, or capital gains rates, or both, should be lower, or zero. But you could have a more philosophical complaint about pass-through taxation. You could say that it is unfair, because you have to pay taxes on income you haven't necessarily received. If you are a partner in a law firm, and you own 10%, and the firm makes $1 million, and the firm decides to keep the money in its firm checking account and not distribute any of it to you, then you have to pay taxes on $100,000 of income that you have not actually received. Seems a little unfair. In practice, many partnerships make tax distributions to make sure that all their partners have enough cash to pay the tax bills on the firm's income, but that's not a law of nature, and the partnership might, might decide not to send out any money. This is a philosophical complaint, but you could also make it a constitutional complaint. The 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution says that the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived. And you could say, well, no, this isn't income. You are paying tax on $100,000 of the business's money, but you never got that money, so it isn't income to you, so Congress can't tax it. In practice, you do not see a lot of law firm partners arguing that it is unconstitutional to tax them on their firm's income, in part for practical reasons, they usually do get the money, and in part for legal reasons. It's a silly argument. However, there are two reasons that this sort of question has become more interesting lately. One is that there is increasing interest in the U.S. government in some sort of billionaire tax. Exactly what this means is debatable, but broadly speaking, the Constitution allows income taxes but not wealth taxes, so a tax like billionaires have to pay 1% of their wealth each year would have problems. So instead, Bloomberg reports, President Joe Biden rejected an outright wealth tax as advocated by Senator Elizabeth Warren during the 2020 campaign, but has since embraced a scaled-back version. His most recent budget would require taxpayers worth more than $100 million to pay a minimum of 25% on their capital gains each year, whether they sold assets for a profit or continue to hold them. Biden touted it at this year's State of the Union address as a billionaire minimum tax. 
One way to think about this is that the billionaire minimum tax is sort of a way to apply the pass-through tax principles to corporate shares. If you own, say, 20% of Tesla Inc., you don't pay any taxes on its income, though it pays corporate taxes, and you don't pay any taxes on the increasing value of your shares until you sell them. And so if you wanted to, you could borrow money against those shares, live lavishly, buy, borrow, die, and never pay taxes. An ordinary worker who makes $100,000 per year pays something like $17,000 of taxes on that $100,000 increase in her wealth. A shareholder whose shares go up by $100 million in a year, but who doesn't sell, pays no tax on that increase in her wealth the billionaire minimum tax would make her pay 25%. But the relevant legal question is, is that income? In some rough economic sense, if your shares go up by $100 million, you are $100 million wealthier, and that seems like income. But it's not quite the same thing as getting a $100 million check in the mail. Historically, unrealized capital gains, increases in value of assets that you don't sell, have not been taxed as income in the US and it would be jarring and possibly unconstitutional to start. The other reason that this stuff is getting more attention is a fairly minor one involving a law that Congress passed in 2017 to change how foreign corporate income is taxed. The Wall Street Journal explains, Before then, U.S. companies paid foreign taxes on foreign profits but could defer any U.S. taxes until they brought earnings back home. Republicans switched to a system with a minimum annual U.S. tax on foreign profits and tax-free repatriation. In that transition, to deal with 30 years of profits com companies had accumulated overseas that hadn't faced U.S. taxation, Congress imposed a one-time levy. The bulk of the estimated $338 billion in revenue that change generated is being paid by large companies such as Apple, Alphabet, and Microsoft. But the tax also applied to some individuals, including those who owned more than 10% of a foreign corporation. If you're Apple Inc. and you earned $100 billion from your overseas subsidiaries over 30 years and kept the money in those subsidiaries, the IRS sent you a big one-time bill for taxes on those profits in 2018, and you paid it. Presumably, you wired some money from those overseas subsidiaries into your U.S. bank accounts to pay the taxes. But if you're just some individual who owns 10% of a foreign company that made money over 30 years, the IRS sent you a one-time bill for taxes on those profits, and you might have trouble paying it. The foreign company might not have sent you any of the money. And as a 10% holder, located thousands of miles away away from the company, you probably can't make it send you the money. So it is arguably a bit rough to make you pay taxes on it. This is what happened to Charles and Kathleen Moore, who in the early 2000s put $40,000 into a friend's business to supply farmers in India's most impoverished regions with basic tools and equipment. That investment bought them about 13% of the stock in the friend's Indian corporation, Kiesencraft Machine Tools Private Limited. It did well and was profitable almost from the start. Charles visited India several times and was impressed with the difference that Kisankraft was making in the lives of India's rural poor, but the Moors never received any distributions, dividends, or other payments from Kisankraft. And as minority shareholders without any role in Kisankraft's management, they had no ability to force the company to issue a dividend. 
and in 2018, they were hit with a $14,729 tax bill on $135,512 of historical Kissenkraft earnings. They paid, sued for a refund, lost in lower courts, and appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which will hear their arguments tomorrow. They argue that this isn't income to them, so they shouldn't have to pay taxes. The argument is that an income tax has to be based on income they had realized, that is, money that they actually got, not just on their ownership of property. Here is their brief. Here is the government's brief, which I find more convincing. Among other things, it points out that this stuff happens all the time. Partners and limited liability company members and S-corporation shareholders pay taxes on their business's income, whether or not they actually get it in cash. If the Supreme Court decides that that's unconstitutional, then most of the regime of U.S. business taxation is unconstitutional. It also points out that there are lots of other cases of unrealized income being taxed. For instance, original issue discount bonds. If a company sells a zero-coupon bond for $50 and it matures in five years and pays back $100, the buyer of the bond is treated as getting $10 a year of interest income, Ten. even though she doesn't actually get paid any interest until the end. My sense is that nobody actually wants to declare pass-through taxation of LLCs unconstitutional. This case would not have made it to the Supreme Court a few years ago. But the billionaire minimum tax idea raises the stakes. If Congress really might tax any increase in wealth, whether or not it is realized, then that opens up a lot of new taxing possibilities, which makes people nervous. But if Congress can't tax any unrealized increase in wealth, then that closes off a lot of taxes that already exist. Hamas insider trading. My fifth law of insider trading is don't do it by planting bombs at a company and shorting its stock. But I suppose there's an argument the other way. My point was that if you are fundamentally an insider trader, getting into terrorism is a bad career move. You are much more likely to get in much more trouble if you add some bombing to your white collar crimes. But from the other perspective, if you are fundamentally a terrorist, I suppose it makes sense to get into insider trading. If you were going to blow up a company's facilities anyway, for ideological reasons, I can see why you'd also want to make money trading on it. There are laws against insider trading, but they may not provide much additional deterrence. Anyway, many, many readers sent me stories about this new paper by Robert Jackson and Joshua Mitz suggesting that Hamas might have insider traded ahead of its October 7th attacks on Israel. Well, no, they suggest that someone might have traded on advanced knowledge of the attacks, not necessarily Hamas. Recent scholarship shows that informed traders increasingly disguise trades in economically linked securities, such as exchange-traded funds, ETFs, linking that work to long-standing literature on financial markets' reactions to military conflict we document a significant spike in short selling in the principal Israeli company ETF days before the October 7th Hamas attack. The short selling that day far exceeded the short selling that occurred during numerous other periods of crisis, including the recession following the financial crisis, the 2014 Israel-Gaza war, and the COVID-19 pandemic. Similarly, we identify increases in short selling before the attack in dozens of Israeli companies traded in Tel Aviv. For one Israeli company alone, 4.43 million new shares sold short over the September 14 to October 5 period yielded profits, or avoided losses, 
of 3.2 billion NIS on that additional short selling. Although we see no aggregate increase in shorting of Israeli companies on U.S. exchanges, we do identify a sharp and unusual increase just before the attacks in trading in risky short-dated options on these companies expiring just after the attacks. We identify similar patterns in the Israeli ETF at times when it was reported that Hamas was planning to execute a similar attack as in October. Our findings suggest that traders informed about the coming attacks profited from these tragic events, and consistent with prior literature, we show that trading of this kind occurs in gaps in U.S. and international enforcement of legal prohibitions on informed trading. All in all, this strikes me as inconclusive. There was abnormal trading in the ETF, but the ETF is tiny. There was basically one day, October 2nd, a week before the attacks, with $12 million or so of trades, and otherwise the ETF traded a few hundred thousand dollars worth per day in the two weeks before October 7th, below its usual daily volume. While the magnitude of additional trading in the Israeli ETF is abnormal, it is not large in absolute terms, likely owing to the limited trading volume and liquidity in that ETF, they write. They place more emphasis on the trading on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange, but here is a report claiming that they overestimate that trading due to a mistake about quoting conventions. And there is some U.S. option trading, where they say that the evidence we present is consistent with substantial block trades that occurred on October 2nd rather than ordinary market-making activity. I have trouble imagining Hamas calling an options market maker to do block trades. But I also don't really understand why outside tippies would have advanced knowledge of the attacks and do all their trading a week ahead of time. Wouldn't a more ordinary model involve information leaking out over time and leading to increased trading in the days leading up to the event? But anyway, there you go. Some people apparently did make some money trading ahead of the October 7th attacks. Private markets are the new public markets. One model you could have is that there is some market for the shares, the shares of private tech startups, and there is some market for the shares of public tech companies, and those markets are distinct, and the private market can go up while the public one goes down, or vice versa. But in the long run, they are linked by the necessity for tech startups to go public. Like you could imagine a market where private investors venture capitalists, growth funds, etc., will pay 5x revenue for a certain sort of tech company, and public investors will pay 3x revenue. And so that sort of company says, I'd rather stay private because I am worth more that way. But there are pressures on the company to eventually go public. It has employees who get paid in stock options and need to be able to cash out, though you can do an employee tender to take care of that. And its venture capital investors are funds with finite lives. Eventually, they need to return cash to their own investors, which means they need to sell shares, generally in an initial public offering or a strategic acquisition to get, get that cash. And so private markets can't have a higher valuation than public markets forever. Eventually, there needs to be some convergence. Traditionally, public market valuations are supposed to be higher. Public markets are more liquid, so it's less risky to hold public shares, so they are worth more. Traditionally, venture capitalists take the risk of illiquid early investments and then make money when they sell to the public markets at a higher price. But we have talked around here about the possibility that private market valuations might be higher and the possible reasons for that. 
Still, in theory, the need to go public would be a constraint on that. Unless it isn't. The Financial Times reports, Silicon Valley venture capital firms are rushing to create private equity-style structures in a race to protect their portfolios and return money to investors. VC funds that invest in tech startups typically run for 10 years with an option to extend for two years, at which point their backers expect a return on investment, without which they can force a sale of portfolio companies or shut them down. Providing those returns has become problematic as a funding boom in fledgling tech companies during the pandemic has been followed by an uncertain economic environment that has led to startups staying private for far longer. In response, dozens of tech investors, including $25 billion venture firm New Enterprise Associates and New York-based Insight Partners, have set up or are establishing continuation fund vehicles, according to people advising on the plans. Continuation funds, which are common in private equity but rare in venture capital, are a secondary investment vehicle that allows them to reset the clock for several years on some assets in old funds by selling them to a new vehicle that they also control. This helps a VC fund's backers, known as limited partners, to roll over their investment or exit. It's a good time for this kind of structure, said Hans Swildens, founder of VC firm Industry Ventures. During the next year, if the IPO market doesn't function and M&A is light, the only way for VC firms to distribute funds back to investors is secondaries. In principle, there's no reason that private investors couldn't just hold on to their favorite tech companies forever. The typical 10-year fund life is an obstacle, but not an insurmountable one. The WeWork guy. We talked last week about a guy who bought a bunch of short-dated, out-of-the-money call options and stock on WeWork Inc., and then allegedly put out a fake press release announcing that he was going to going to buy WeWork at a premium. This naturally caused the stock to go up, making his options and stock more valuable, except that due to formatting errors and other delays, he didn't get the press release out until 5.12 p.m. on a Friday, at which point his options had expired, the market was closed, and he didn't make any money. WeWork filed for bankruptcy that weekend, and the stock didn't reopen until Wednesday, at which point everyone knew the press release was fake. Several readers emailed to point out that actually you have until 5.30 p.m. on the expiration date to exercise your options. So, in theory, the guy could have gotten the press release out late, quickly exercised his options and sold the stock. Still, that would not really help. The stock went up in after-hours trading on his fake press release, but it barely got above the strike prices of some of his options, and that only later in the evening after the options expired. The trick with this thing is to actually move the stock price and, more important, the options price during trading hours and then sell your options rather than exercising them. And if you wait until 5.12, most of the gamblers have gone home and it doesn't work. Analyst cliques? I don't know. Here is just an extremely relatable Business Insider article about how some investment banking analysts don't hang out with other investment banking analysts. The biggest disappointment of banking for me is that I thought all of us analysts would be super close. I thought we would have this really strong camaraderie and we'd be friends for life after this, said Madison, who asked to use a pseudonym to pr protect her identity at work. But after I walk out of this firm, I can't say I will keep in contact with a single one. Madison, for example, 
described major tension between her analyst class and the one above it, a problem that started during her first year on the job. Late at night, they'll do an order for bubble tea or something, and they will literally exclude every single one of us while including everyone else in the office, she said. It's a hostile environment between them and us. Frankly, I don't want to be here for another year dealing with these people. Yeah. Some of the pettiness seems right out of the movies. There's this girl in the year above me. You can walk by her in the hallway and say, oh, hey, how's it going? And she will just walk straight past you, dead-faced, and will not acknowledge you, Madison said. The class above me, the second-year analysts, were kind of known to be one of the closest groups of people, said Abby who asked to use a pseudonym to protect her future job prospects. But then, when the first-year review season came around, that kind of changed everything. I saw how the relationship has been torn. I started to see the lines between friendship and professional rivalry just blur, and it got really toxic. Terrific stuff. There are traditional problems at Wall Street banks that come from the nature of the work, stressful, lucrative, risk-taking, etc., or the nature of the usual recruits. But an underestimated problem in banking is that it employs a lot of young people in their first job out of college, and sometimes they like a little drama. I just wish this story was like Madison did some rogue trading because of the bubble tea incident. Things happen. Ego, fear, and money, how the AI fuse was lit. Microsoft is happy being the co-pilot on the OpenAI rocket ship. Shut up and take our money, investors say about financial advice. NASDAQ penny stocks. Alaska Air reaches deal to buy Hawaiian Airlines. Gold price hits all-time high as traders bet on interest rate cuts. Defense stocks benefit from war, renewing ESG debate for everyday investors. Spotify cuts 1,500 jobs. CEO X says streamer must be leaner. The opioid victims who won't sign off on Purdue's $6 billion settlement. The chicken tycoons versus the antitrust hawks. Binance copped a $4 billion plea but is still fighting the SEC. How suspects laundered billions in Singapore for years. Malincrod avoids $14 million SEC fine in Medicaid overcharge case. Credit Suisse AT1 fallout widens in Japan with more lawsuits. Uber, JBill, and Builders First Source set to join S&P 500. Chinese borrowers default in record numbers as economic crisis deepens. Chinese developer Evergrande wins more time for restructuring deal. UBS sells Credit Suisse jet used by Horta Osorio during COVID breaches. Kiss avatars go on tour after Paul Stanley Gene Simmons retire. If you'd like to get Money Stuff in handy email form, right in your inbox, please subscribe at this link. Or you can subscribe to Money Stuff and other great Bloomberg newsletters here. Thanks. Corporations that elect to be taxed as pass-through entities are called S-corporations. This is broadly but not exactly true. The dividends need to be qualified, and also dividends that are return of capital are not taxed this way. Also, while qualified dividend taxation currently follows capital gains rates in the U.S., this was not always true and is not conceptually necessary, though it makes sense. That's the long-term capital gains rate for if you've held the stock for at least a year. If you sell earlier, you pay ordinary rates. Also, I should say that there's an exception for securities dealers who pay taxes on changes in inventory value each year, regardless of whether they sell. Of course, you pay interest, though if the stock is valuable enough and the loan is a small percentage of its value, you probably get a good rate.
This trade was more appealing during the years when interest rates were near zero than it is now. Still, if the stock's annual growth is higher than your interest rate, a decent deal. The more technical argument is that the Constitution says that direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers. So for a while, an income tax was considered unconstitutional because it was not apportioned among states. Then the 16th Amendment was passed to say that an income tax is fine, but a tax that is not on income, a wealth tax, say, would presumably need to be apportioned by population, which would be very weird. Also other stuff, real estate, Bitcoin, that generates more appreciation than cash flow. But realistically, the main source here is going to be ownership interests in corporations. This is like an Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Warren Buffett tax. Also to be clear, it's not quite the same as pass-through taxation. You'd pay taxes on the increase in market value of your shares, not the income of the underlying company. Though arguably, in the very long term, those things should be related. You could sell the stock, but it's not necessarily publicly traded. Maybe you can't. Also, there is a timing oddity. The 2017 tax simply attributes a foreign corporation's retained earnings going back 30 years to whoever owned its shares in 2017, irrespective of any event by which they might have realized anything. So in theory, if the foreign company earned $1 billion over 30 years ending in 2016, and you bought 10% of the stock at the end of 2016, you owe taxes on 10% of that $1 billion, even if the company has made no money and the stock has dropped since then. The quotes in this paragraph are from their Supreme Court brief. The Moore's brief unconvincingly distinguishes these cases, citations omitted. Partners are taxed on a general partnership income because it is their income, partnerships having no existence separate from their partners. Similarly, the owners of an S corporation unanimously elect to be taxed on the business's income, thereby conceding that its income is theirs. Eh, really, it's a constant percentage of accreted principal, lower than $10 in the first year, higher than $10 in the last. But this is more intuitive.